I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interac. Today, I speak with Shuman Gosmajinder, Global Head of Artificial Intelligence at F5. Shuman previously was CTO at Shape Security, led global product management for click fraud at Google, and he is the co-author of CGI Programming Unleashed and a contributing author to Crimeware. He also is a regular guest lecturer at Stanford. And thank you so much for joining me, Shuman. Thanks for having me, Jody. So let's uh, let's hop right to it. Uh, you know, responding to this pandemic and getting out of lockdown uh, requires the collection, use, and disclosure of personal information. We know that is the case. That is how we're going to craft a pathway out of this. Uh, but as Chrissy Farr from CNBC said on Twitter. You know, she's getting increasingly concerned that people are being told they have to choose between privacy and civil liberties in order for life to return to normal. Um, but is it really an either or choice? You know, I'm not sure if uh, anyone really knows the answer to that. I think that it all depends on what the course of the pandemic looks like. It depends on how uh, the measures that different societies are taking are able to influence uh, the spread of coronavirus. And I think that there is the opportunity to be able to use data and uh, in, use more and more data to be able to uh, create new responses. But exactly how far you go depends on uh, how desperate you are. It depends on how great a risk there is from not doing more. So one of the ways that I think about it is, let's say that uh, this was a very different type of disease. Let's say that uh, we were dealing with something like uh, the bubonic plague or dealing with uh, a uh, version of Ebola that could be spread through respiratory droplets. That would be something where, let's say you had a greater than 50% case fatality rate, uh, human society uh, would be threatened by that. It would uh, be uh, uh, the sort of uh, issue where we would be willing to do just about anything to ensure our survival. And at that point, uh, we would use all of the data that was available. We probably wouldn't care as a society about privacy. And uh, we would say, let's take every bit of data that's available through mobile phones, through carriers, through every database that exists and collect more in order to ensure that we can control this pandemic. But that's not what COVID-19 looks like. And so uh, we already know from experience when we're dealing with diseases that have lower case fatality rates, like the flu, that we're not willing to compromise our privacy in order to be able to deal with uh, even uh, pandemics that are causing the deaths of tens of thousands of people in the United States and in other countries um, as the flu does. So now the question is, with COVID-19 being uh, at a higher level of risk to society and, of course, requiring society to respond in ways that it's never responded before, what are we willing to accept in terms of uh, impact to privacy? What are we willing to do in terms of uh, increasing data collection in order to be able to control that? And I think that the view on this is evolving as the pandemic evolves. So if uh, four months from now, uh, we're still in the exact same lockdown scenario that we're currently experiencing in uh, most of uh, uh, the uh, large states in the United States and in other parts of the world, then I think uh, 
people will change the way that they think about uh, you know some of these issues. Now, uh, there are already measures that are being enacted, for example, from uh, companies like Apple and Google uh, to be able to facilitate contact tracing using data in a way that is hopefully privacy preserving. But I think that uh, there's still many details that need to be worked out, and there are still risks that are associated with that as well. One of my favorite uh, lines about infectious diseases is, if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. And I think your (laughs) response really encapsulates that, you know, because uh, each pandemic has a unique risk profile and therefore um, the the trade-offs, compromises, uh, social contracts we're willing to uh, enter into um, are unique to each. So before we get into some of those um, applications and, and their privacy implications, I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork and And so I'm going to ask you, what is uh, a person's uh, digital identity? I think that the way the phrase digital identity is interpreted depends on the context and the application in which it's used. So in some cases, you might think about it in terms of how does my uh, personal identity in, in the real world translate into the digital realm? And so uh, your uh, official statements that uh, you put out over email or Twitter or other accounts that you control, uh, that's one sense of digital identity. And so uh, it's extremely important that you maintain control of those accounts and and security is a big issue in terms of ensuring that your digital identity is not stolen by someone else in those types of uh, scenarios. But there are other concepts of digital identity as well, such as being able to track individuals and being able to infer uh, the uh, behavior of individuals online, where it's not so much about associating it with your uh, real-world identity as it is being able to just understand what you're doing across uh, various websites for the purposes of things like advertising targeting. And that's also a concept of digital identity that uh, is uh, commonplace in uh, different parts of the technology industry. So I think that uh, the key issue there is not so much security as it is privacy. So what data is being collected about you in order to be able to perform that type of tracking? Are you aware of it? Is the data that you're providing to different systems being used in ways that are unintended or uh, that uh, uh, you wouldn't support if you had more visibility into them? And, uh, you know, that this is one of the reasons why uh, privacy uh, and security, although related concepts, uh, have to be approached differently. One of the uh, more interesting uh, things I was reading about uh, as I was preparing to speak with you was uh, that more and more um, estate lawyers are, uh, it's becoming increasingly common um, to plan for access to, you know, your digital assets and accounts um, as part of your will-making. And I thought that was kind of interesting. It hadn't crossed my mind previously. Absolutely. I think that this is an example of how society adopts technologies before understanding the long-term implications of those technologies and how they change our lives. So you can find many people um, on social networks, for example, uh, who have passed away 
and uh, there isn't a good mechanism or at least a standardized mechanism that exists to be able to update those accounts or to be able to take them down. There, there isn't even uh, an accepted set of social norms that's associated with that. And certainly uh, there are uh, some profound implications when uh, an individual has access to uh, certain accounts like bank accounts or uh, other types of uh, online uh, authorizations and that individual can't be reached or that individual passes away and uh, now other uh, stakeholders or parties that need to be able to access uh, those same accounts uh, can no longer access them very easily. And so what you see in uh, various industries is that they've had to come up with uh, their own approaches to how to grant access to accounts and how to be able to uh, revise those uh, uh, access controls depending on uh, uh, the specific uh, nature of the request. Um, I really like what you said about, you know, uh, we don't even really have social norms um, around um, digital assets and, and the uh, different points that contribute to our digital identity. But here we are, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and now we have to, you know, sort this out um, to, to a certain extent um, in real time. Um, so not all data is as personal um, as, uh, you know, data that's tied to our internet usage or, or different applications. Um, uh, but there can still be concerns with um, how data is presented and used. So I wanted to, um, as we get into examples of, of how data can be leveraged in the COVID-19 context, I wanted to start off with aggregated data. You know, uh, Google um, showed some really interesting um, information to the world uh, by looking at um, uh, mobility uh, reports. Uh, so those were published and, you know, Canadians were like, oh, maybe we are moving around a, a little bit more than, than, than we actually thought we were. Um, what are the privacy considerations related to aggregated data? Should we be letting our shoulders drop a little bit when we see these things or, or, or are there deeper questions to be probed there? Well, you have to have the individualized data in order to be able to aggregate it in the first place. So I think that rightfully so, uh, privacy advocates have focused on what individual data collection occurs in the first place in order to be able to then provide any kind of aggregated view. And the key activity there is data minimization. So don't collect data unless you've got a good reason that you need to have that data. And uh, that's the beginning of ensuring that you're uh, creating as much privacy as possible. But then after that, you've got mechanisms like aggregation and anonymization that allow you to be able to derive value from that data that can help society in ways that are additionally privacy preserving. So by producing that data in an aggregated format, uh, Google is able to inform the world about what mobility looks like in different regions without uh, risking the privacy of any of the individuals that contributed to that aggregated data set. So I think that there are many different examples of this, uh, you know, not, not only uh, uh, from Google, but from uh, many companies. So uh, in the case of Google, uh, you look at uh, Google Trends and it shows you what are the most commonly searched terms that are associated with a given region uh, every year or with uh, different demographics or psychographics. And there used to be a tool uh, from Google called Flu Trends, where 
we would look at the most searched for symptoms that were associated with the flu in different regions. And in the first couple of years of flu trends, uh, what that generated was an aggregated graph that would indicate where there was an outbreak of flu in different regions of the United States that basically mirrored the exact same graph that the CDC would produce, but two weeks in advance. Now, over time, that graph uh, became less accurate for a variety of different reasons, but it still uh, points to the promise of aggregated data being able to help in scenarios like this, because there are different things that can correlate to the outbreak of a particular disease or you know, other types of aggregated patterns that uh, you would want to be able to flag. And uh, one of the theories that's come up recently is that there's a correlation between uh, COVID-19 and losing your sense of smell. So one of the things that I've been wondering about is, is there some kind of a pattern that you know Google or others might have in search activity that's associated with people wondering why they've suddenly lost their sense of smell and regions where there may be a cluster of COVID-19 cases. Well, that's fascinating. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a general desire to um, have some visualization uh, of what's happening, right? I, we're all bunkered down at home, right? And so this, in some ways, these these reports, these visualizations, uh, these really interesting um, portrayals uh, of data in, in an understandable way that, that shows us not as individuals, you know, sheltered inside of our homes, if we're lucky enough to have a home, but, but shows us, you know, as a, as a species, what are we doing right now? I think, I think there's a real social aspect to it too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we are learning so much about uh, ourselves and uh, what it means for us to interact with others. I think our brains are actually getting kind of rewired by this whole experience of being uh, in the context of sheltering in place. And I've seen this uh, affect the way that people talk to each other. So now uh, when people say, let's meet, they actually mean get on a video video conference as opposed to meeting in person because that's just not a thing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is really interesting. And nobody just picks up the phone anymore. Uh, it's almost all uh, all business, all meetings are, are conducted by, by Zoom, which certainly wasn't my, my experience um, prior to, uh, to the shelter in place order. Yeah, you know, that's a fascinating pattern that I've also observed where uh, you not only have video conferencing replacing in-person meetings, but you have video conferencing replacing telephone calls that were audio only. So now all of a sudden, uh, I think the thought is, if we're going to interact at a distance through uh, some kind of telecommunications uh, device, why not just use the same device that I've been using for in-person meetings as, as a substitute? And so uh, it just becomes the, the easiest way for video conferencing to become the, the standard way of making phone calls. Fascinating. Well, let's talk about what right now the world seems to be talking about, which is contact surveillance. Um, you know, the world's eyes turned uh, to South Korea. They're using a variety of tools, um, such as surveillance cameras, uh, cell phone data, 
uh, credit card transactions, um, all in an effort uh, to map uh, transmission. Um, so on the one hand, we, you know, really, um, I think, are, are covetous of, um, of the way um, business has been able to continue um, in South Korea uh, without um, huge spikes uh, in cases. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, we kind of scratch our heads and say, but would that work here? Are we comfortable with that uh, for, from a, a privacy uh, perspective? You know, I think that that is uh, an excellent and uh, complicated question in terms of first understanding what are the true privacy implications. And I'm not sure that there's uh, a simple answer to that because there's uh, so much complexity associated with which technical mechanisms you use to be able to collect data, who has access to it, what are the long-term plans versus the short-term plans for that data, and the level of visibility that uh, the uh, population has to any of that data collection and analysis that's going on. I think that there's basically three levels to it. The first is if you've got uh, an, a purely opt-in system. So in some parts of the world, they've been performing contact tracing using apps that you install on your phone. And the uh, benefit there is that users are in control of whether or not they install those apps. The drawback is that you have to have many users taking that action um, of installing the app in order to be able to really get the benefit of contact tracing through it. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got implicit data collection. So if the government goes in and uses its enhanced level of access to get data from telecommunications companies and from uh, technology companies in order to perform contact tracing regardless of what the population wants or is aware of. And the great benefit there is that you can get data uh, on the entire population and do it relatively quickly in some cases and, and take very swift action. The danger, of course, is that uh, the population has no control over it and may not have visibility into it. And in the long term, who knows what else that same data could be used for, used for once you break that seal. So Today, uh, you might justify it in the context of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but tomorrow, what if the same uh, government or uh, the same um, uh, agencies say we could use this data to be able to identify criminal activity or uh, to be able to take it one step further and predict criminal activity by taking that data and putting it into uh, machine learning systems? In the middle, you've got mechanisms where uh, you could use an opt-out approach. So if you've got, for example, uh, the framework that Apple and Google are creating pushed out to everyone's phones this summer and the contact tracing uh, ability is switched on by default, if you still have the ability to switch it off, then it gives you some balance between uh, getting it out to uh, a very large number of people and getting the benefit from a contact tracing perspective, but also giving some control to users in terms of being able to uh, remove themselves from that system. So which mechanism you actually roll out depends on what uh, your level of uh, concern and risk is, um, how uh, 
your government and uh, your population views the trade-off between uh, data privacy and uh, security and safety and uh, you know what uh, stage you're at in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, you know, there, um, you know, we hear less um, about um, the, all the parts of the South Korean approach, right? And how some of it is, uh, is tied to culture, right? So, so in addition to, you know, the, the surveillance, which, as you point out, is mandatory, um, uh, you know, there are uh, penalties um, up to two years in prison um, if you're found guilty of lying about uh, details considered necessary for infection containment. Um, so that's kind of part of the parcel. And um, and uh, as well, and I found this really interesting, was that um, authorities publicly release um, recent movement history of a confirmed patient. And that transparency, which, you know, to a certain extent, when I first read it, kind of took my breath away, to be honest. I was like, oh, wow, like that's like a very high level of disclosure. But it also seems to be building confidence um, in South Koreans in terms of, uh, you know, the the management of the pandemic um, and their ability to uh, go out and, you know, work side by side and, and live their lives. So, you know, sometimes I get concerned because the conversation about South Korea is focused just on the surveillance without looking at, okay, but it also comes with some you know, uh, downside risk in terms of, you know, prison uh, penalties. That's pretty serious. Uh, but it also is partnered with this um, radical transparency, which we don't also necessarily see um, in, in our culture either. You know, I think that uh, there are uh benefits that you can gain from an expediency perspective to just saying we're going to uh, publish uh, detailed information uh, on individuals in order to be able to uh, enact contact tracing as efficiently and as effectively as possible. Uh, But uh, if you put more work into it, it's possible to get a lot of the same benefits, but preserve some uh, privacy uh, using uh, technology solutions. So, for example, one of the things that Apple and Google have baked into their framework is the ability to perform contact tracing in a way that is purely based on local interactions. So, using Bluetooth technology, which is a technology which can only function in uh, the scope of uh, uh, many feet as opposed to being able to locate you geographically uh, regardless of where you are. It has the ability to determine other phones that you've been in contact with without actually revealing the identities of all of the people that you've been around. And so I think that uh, that relies on uh, companies who can make that investment in cryptography and uh, are willing to move quickly enough to do something as uh, widespread as updating the standard operating system used in mobile devices around the world. This this is something that really uh, only companies like Apple and Google can do. And similarly, um, there are great actions uh, in terms of scale that uh, governments and other large companies can take. And so the specific action that everyone takes, I think, is really a, a question of what technology are they familiar with and uh, you know, how do they weigh those trade-offs between expediency and uh, wanting to uh, preserve privacy. 
So there has been some concerns about, you know, how, what, what level of accuracy needs, does there need to be um, for, you know, the worlds to rely on them, whether to open up their economies or, you know, to, to lessen uh, lockdown measures. Um, uh, do you think we will uh, get a chance as a society before we adopt these technologies to, to see what the um, sort of what the stress testing and assessments that have been done on these tools in advance of their rolling out? Well, I think that these tools are uh, one part of the solution. So uh, the overall effect on a society is a combination of how many people are infected, what are the activities uh, that uh, that society is engaged in that can uh, scale up or scale down the uh, rate of infection, and um, you know what exactly uh, does that. Uh, uh, change in terms of the stress on the healthcare system in that country, and uh, what are the effects on the economy? So, for all of those factors taken together, I think that uh, a country needs to determine uh, whether or not it is being effective in its response. So, for example, when you're talking about any kind of contact tracing system, it relies on you being accurate in terms of whether or not you're identifying uh, people who are COVID-19 positive. And uh, there are a number of different concerns that have been raised uh, around tests in different parts of the world that can produce false positives. So if you now have a very well-designed contact tracing system that is effective in terms of identifying clusters of COVID-19, but the input into that is inaccurate and you're actually going and deploying resources trying to uh, quarantine people who have been in contact with someone who is not actually COVID-19 positive, then uh, you're not going to be very effective or efficient in terms of your national response. Um, that being said, uh, if you've got a system that is highly imperfect, but a healthcare system that is robust enough that it can weather the effects of uh, a curve that hasn't been as flattened as it could be, then you can actually be in a much better uh, uh, scenario than a country that is more effective uh, in terms of its contact tracing and in terms of its false positive rates with uh, COVID-19 tests that uh, has uh, a much more constrained healthcare system. So I think that you have to take all of those factors together to uh, figure out, uh, you know, if you're doing a good enough job that you can start to think about reopening, how these technologies relate to what uh, reopening would look like and uh, where you want to deploy your resources and effort in terms of making improvements in uh, each of those uh, components. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine a fully automated contact tracing uh, service um, uh, that we could you know, rely on to make decisions about reopening uh, or lessening uh, lockdown procedures. Um, you know, I see these apps more as tools. They're tools in the hands of epidemiologists and public health professionals um, who will then uh, make decisions about self-isolating and that type of thing. I mean, I don't think you would want to fully automate uh, that process, just because I think you would actually probably end up with almost everybody on lockdown. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> 
I completely agree. And I think that that applies to uh, most technology in general. I don't think that you want to hand over control to uh, technology and remove human judgment from uh, important decisions. I think that you want to use that technology as a tool and then determine uh, what course of action to take based on uh, what uh, the data and the, the tools that you have at your disposal are telling you. And you know there may be circumstances where uh, the tool is very effective and uh, uh, you know, you you want to place a great deal of trust in, in what it's telling you. And in other cases, you may determine that there are other factors that uh, override, uh, you know, what the tool would otherwise indicate. Yeah, I, w- I worry about two things in particular. The first is, and it's kind of an adjunct of what, of what you just said, it, it you could create a desensitizing effect, right? If you start getting too many, you know, bells, telling you you've been in contact with someone um, without uh, there being another layer of judgment attached to, you know, the kind of contact it, it was and what level of risk it came with it. If you if you keep getting pinged that, that, that you've been exposed to someone with COVID-19, um, you know, it ends up being a little bit um, like the boy who cried wolf. And, and I worry maybe, maybe we just start ignoring the bells. Right. So let, let's say that we get to the point that, uh, you know, some uh, epidemiologists have talked about and uh, more than 60 or 70 percent of the population uh, has had COVID-19 and, you know, recovered uh, at some point. Um, what if uh, your contact tracing technology is constantly pinging you the way that you just described? At, at some point, uh, you realize that this isn't really a risk. This is just the nature of uh, that larger percentage of the population having had COVID-19 at some point. Um, On the other hand, let's say that uh, uh, you get uh, a binary kind of indicator that tells you uh, whether or not you're at risk. You're going to start to trust that indicator. And so uh, whenever people start uh, trusting technology fully to make their decisions for them, then you're at uh, risk when uh, the technology gets it wrong. And there's always the potential for there to be defects in the system, for there to be bugs in code that can uh, affect whether or not uh, you're getting accurate information. And so I think that uh, this is a, a challenge that constantly exists in terms of how people integrate technology into their lives. You can give them very detailed, nuanced information, and so you can explain uh, exactly what type of data the app is collecting and uh, you know how you can interpret it. And the vast majority of people are never going to get into the details of that to be able to appreciate all of that nuance. Or you can create something that has a very simple user interface, and people will begin to blindly trust it. And so... Uh, there's a real trade-off there in terms of how technology will af- affect people's behavior. And I think that that's something that uh, we not only have to figure out, but uh, we're trying to figure it out on a more accelerated schedule than uh, we integrate most new technology into our lives. So think about how long it's taken uh, people to understand the long-term implications of sharing data with social networks, how long it's taken uh, people to be able to understand the long-term implications of uh, data collected in an advertising context or in a, a mobile device context. And now we're expecting them to figure out what data collection means in the context of a pandemic that they hadn't heard about four months ago. 
Yeah, you know, I I think it's very much, um, I reflect on the time it takes to develop a vaccine. And and to be clear, it could be an infinite amount of time to, you know, i.e. we may never develop a vaccine. But generally speaking, you know, we hear often that, you know, a, a minimum of 18 months to, to, to identify a potential solution and to do sufficient uh, randomized clinical trials on it to, to assess uh, safety and efficacy. I mean, ideally, before we unleashed any of these apps, they too would go through randomized controlled trials to really understand the intersection between technology and human behaviors. But I'm not sure we have that kind of time. Exactly. And uh, one of the concerns that's already been raised here is what happens if one of these frameworks or apps gets hijacked for malicious purposes? And this is something that we consistently see in the cybersecurity industry, that something which is created with a benevolent intention is often co-opted by cyber criminals and by uh, other adversaries um, in a way that the original creators of that system would never have been able to anticipate. And new security controls often come in after those types of uh, uh uh, fraud and abuse are discovered and demonstrated in the wild. And so uh, what could uh, the effects there be? We don't know yet. Or even just gaming of the app, right? Like for either, you know, silly purposes uh, or something more sinister in, you know, the tradition of Black Mirror, you know? Um, you know, it, we, we could create some really uh, strange um, and unbeneficial outcomes. Yeah, so uh, the, the framework that uh, Apple and Google are launching this summer, for example, um, that allows uh, third parties particularly health systems, to be able to build apps on top of it. What happens if uh, six months from now uh, people say this is a really useful framework for other types of diseases as well? Let's use it for the flu. Now, the way that you would approach uh, contact tracing for the flu is different than the way that you would approach it for something like COVID-19. In the case of COVID-19, one of the things that Apple and, and Google have thought about is uh, how do you ensure that the reported cases are accurate so that it's resilient to some extent to the types of gaming that you were just describing. One of the ways that you can do that is by only letting trusted healthcare systems report uh, a COVID-19 case. But if you were to extend something like this to do contact tracing for the flu, there are far too many cases uh, uh, for you to go through the public health system every single time uh, or, or through any type of health system. And so in that case, you might have apps that are built where you've got uh, individuals that are capable of reporting it. Now what happens if people who don't actually have the flu start reporting on a large basis? But what happens if people start uh, reporting uh, cases of the flu or other diseases specifically for the purpose of getting people to panic or to quarantine or to take whatever uh, action is recommended by that app um, for uh, the pure purpose of manipulating them. Uh, I think that uh, we just don't know what uh, types of uh, abuse that could be subject to in, in the future. And, uh, you know, right now we're just thinking of it in the context of COVID-19 because uh, that is uh, the most pressing issue. But uh, the way you roll out these technologies has to also have an eye towards uh, the long-term implications. 
Absolutely. So, you know, it, as, as a, you know, some of our listeners are, are, you know, everyday citizens and, and they hear uh, these ideas being floated by uh, various levels of government from mayors uh, to uh, provinces and Canada and states in the United States and, and federal levels. Um, what are some of the things that citizens, um, what, what are the kinds of questions they should be asking uh, about these proposals and, and, and what kinds of things should they, they be looking for to either gain confidence from or to, uh, to, to raise uh, some red flags? So I think that this is taking discussions that have been happening for many years around data privacy and putting them in a context where people can actually view the trade-offs between privacy and security more clearly than they've been able to view them before. Because it's always been kind of uh, a diffuse and uh, um, uh, abstract issue for a lot of people. Data is being collected about me through various channels. I don't know exactly how different companies that are operating behind the scenes might be using this data. And I, I don't even necessarily understand what uh, the benefit or harms are that are associated with this. And so that discussion has been left more uh, to privacy commissioners and privacy experts and advocates around the world to have with technology companies and with governments. But now, people can see the benefit in terms of potentially being able to control uh, the spread of this pandemic. People can also start to understand some of the risks that are associated with enhanced tracking of their own movements and uh, people that they're in contact with. So now they can phrase the questions in ways that I think are uh, more accessible. So they can start to ask, is a new mechanism going to suddenly allow the government or a technology company or a third party or a cyber criminal to be able to understand where I've been more effectively than they could in the past? Is it going to allow any of those entities to be able to understand who I know or who is in my social circle uh, more effectively than they could in the past. And, and when you can phrase those questions in a straightforward way, I think that you can have uh, a very useful public debate around what those trade-offs look like. And uh, of course, uh, there's uh, a question of control here. So let's say that uh, the population of a given country is actually comfortable with uh, an unusual measure in terms of collecting more data in a way that uh, would impact privacy in uh, the short term in order to be able to get this short-term safety and security benefit. What's the long-term plan to be able to roll that back? In general, I think that this is one of the, the main concerns that uh, privacy advocates have, that you don't usually see uh, uh, technology mechanisms and policy, uh, uh, which is enacted uh, for a short-term emergency, rolled back very uh, expediently in the future when that particular event has passed, uh, because there are other applications for those same powers. And so uh, if you uh, create mechanisms like opt-in apps, uh, as opposed to uh, uh, implicit data collection, then that can uh, provide a population with a, a lot more reassurance that there is a long-term plan to be able to roll back uh, those types of powers. And so I think that we now have the ability to have uh, a discussion uh, that uh, would have been more difficult around privacy versus security just uh, a year ago.
Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, for, for me, um, I would love to see any and all interventions, you know, have some sort of sunset clause in them. And, uh, obviously with every sunset clause, there's usually a mechanism to not sunset it, but it requires either legislators to go back to the house or it requires agencies to go, uh, to their, uh, enabling legislation to request permission. And then sometimes there's a level of hearing, um, around that question. I, I, I think I would be comfortable with quite a lot of things so long as the right people were involved. So, you know, public health, maybe not CSIS or, you know, uh, different law enforcement agencies. Uh, but, but, but if it were truly clinical purpose and clinicians were the ones, you know, uh, having access to that information, I'm very comfortable. And I'm probably 100% comfortable so long as there's, you know, some level of sunsetting and some level of transparency in terms of reporting around how the data is used, how long it's maintained for, um, how research uh, would, would, would flow out of it. Yeah, I think that uh, that's exactly the right way to be able to approach this from uh, a uh, societal perspective. Who has access to the data? What are the, the controls in place? What are, what are the safeguards that have been enacted? But whenever you're talking about technology, there are additional complexities that uh, are often only revealed once you've uh, experienced uh, the, the limitations of what you're able to discuss up front. So, for example, uh, the example uh, th that you gave of uh, the right clinicians having access to certain data sets. I think that that's a great framework to be able to use. But then when you look at the technology that's used in healthcare systems, in many cases, there are old versions of Windows that are actually running the infrastructure of various Absolutely. hospitals and universities that can easily be taken over by cyber criminals. And so that's something that, uh, you know, from a policy level, you don't often think about. And it's not as though... Uh, the availability of new data sets that enable researchers is also going to come with a set of cybersecurity requirements that hospital systems and universities suddenly have to spend tens of millions of dollars upgrading their IT infrastructure. So I think that uh, it's similar to how uh, you look at some of the big cybersecurity incidents against Fortune 500 companies uh, in uh, uh, the last uh, decade. And these are companies that have spent tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars on cybersecurity, but in some cases they were compromised because there was a vendor that was uh, working with them that had access to certain types of data and the vendor wasn't as secure and that's who was actually compromised. So whenever you're dealing with this complex ecosystem or stack of technology, there are additional uh, security and privacy risks that are difficult to encapsulate in that same conversation. Okay, so I ask uh, everyone who comes on the show to, uh, you know, make some predictions. And so I guess the question I would put to you is, how do you think this pandemic will influence our thinking about privacy and security for that matter? Um, you know, so many articles written about privacy uh, being dead. Do you, do you think um, this pandemic will elevate our conversations about privacy and security or will, uh, or will it just be another uh, 
another stop along a, a course where where we've kept uh, our our level of discussion at a at a pretty high level and sometimes not even you know reading the fine print around what the privacy implications are of the applications we use. I think that it will definitely. Uh, heighten the level of awareness of privacy issues. And it's gotten more people talking about privacy than ever before. I think that uh, there uh, are going to be many instances where people consciously make the decision to give up some privacy in order to be able to uh, deal with the pandemic more effectively. But at the same time, I think that uh, they're going to be more aware of how different technologies affect their privacy than they were in the past. So when uh, there are data sets that are being used by governments that they weren't even aware of before, uh, that is helpful education. And that spurs uh, debate and uh, conversation that wasn't happening before the pandemic. So I think that going forward, uh, people are going to be uh, a lot more uh, intentional about the way that they uh, approach data privacy issues and uh, approach incorporating uh, technology into their lives. And this provides uh, a useful framework to be able to think about those trade-offs that uh, I I think that most people haven't had before. Shubhan Gosmajinder, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your insights and and helping us, uh, you know, think critically and thoughtfully um, about uh, public health interventions and their privacy implications. Thanks so much, Jody.